Hey, Augmenters. I'm Julie. This is Jimmy. And we know that great leaders have great mentors. And today we are joined by Pablo Srugo, a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. Pablo is going to help us understand the difference between people who invest in your success versus folks who have an investment in your success. We are going to grow to our potential by thinking about the statement, humans bridge the gap. This is critical when trying to find that professional overlap in a mentor, as you want somebody who has recently walked in your shoes and had a similar experience. This entire podcast is under the principle roadmap. It's all about gaining experiences and recognizing and empathizing with other founders. Here we go. Pablo Sarugo, welcome to Augmenters. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for thanks for having me. Excited to be here. We are super, super excited to hear all about your story. You have done some amazing things, connected with some amazing people, and brought some phenomenal businesses to the world. So I think you're going to have a lot to share with our listeners. So we'd love to just hear a little bit more about you before we get started. We usually ask our guests to tell us about a mentor that they had, potentially a mentor who really believed in them before they believed in themselves. So could you share with us who that was and what they saw in you? I mean, if we're going to go to somebody who who believed in, in me before I believed in myself specifically, you know, maybe we go all the way back and, and then we're, we're talking about my dad, right? Mm. Somebody who certainly saw things in me before I was even able to, not so much that I didn't have confidence in myself. Like I think, you know, we're talking about a four-year-old kid or a five-year-old kid doesn't even know what believing in themselves means, right? And so I think yeah. that uh, that's really powerful because it, it's, you know, I consider myself somebody who's who's pretty confident, let's say, I'm, I, you know, I obviously hope not to be arrogant, but in the areas where I think I'm, I'm decent, you know, where I think I can do things, I don't suffer too much self-doubt. And I have to say that's probably a hundred percent because of, of my dad and the sort of confidence that that instills in a young kid when their mind's being formed, when their like essence is being formed. And so for somebody to, to believe in you, to push you, my dad always pushed me, right? He always pushed me to be better, whatever it was, was I was doing, you know, if, if the kids were doing subtraction and addition in, in grade one, I was doing multiplication, not because like, I thought it was because he was the one pushing me to do that and, and just pulling the right strings for me to be interested. It was never in like, hey, hey, you have to do this because I say so. It's just pulling at the right things and the right interests to make me better, you know, whether it was sports or whether it was, it was school or whatever else it was. That is huge, honestly, because I think as parents, you don't always know the right balance. And I think the sort of parenting philosophies have changed a bit to be less Definitely. like, no, you actually just have to do it. It's more like, well, do you want to do it or do you not want to do it? So how did he, like, were you, how did he get you to do some of these things? Was it just a hit? Like you said, it wasn't necessarily him telling you to do it. Like, I, what did he say? Was yeah, he trying I, to no, inspire it's, it's you? Like, to remember, a person or? Yeah. I'm I think that it. he was really good at, at noticing the interests and then pulling on them. Right. And at the end Ooh. of the day, that's one thing that you know, you think kids want to just sit there and watch TV and yeah, if you put it on, that's what they're going to do and they're going to zombie out, but they actually don't really want to do that. If you, if, you know, this is kind of the Montessori approach, right? Like if you were to let a kid and have a bunch of different things that they could do, whether it's sports, music, drawing, you know, helping you cook and clean, whatever it is, they're a four-year-old kid, a five-year-old kid, six-year-old kid is naturally going to want to do that. And, and then that's the starting point because he tried many times to make me, he's a guitar player. And, you know, to make me interested in music. And frankly, he just always failed. Because I, there was no, <laughs> there was no <laughs> natural skill, that's for sure. 
and no natural interest. But when it came to math, when it came to sports, there was natural interest. And then it was just a matter of pulling on thing. And it wasn't about, hey, if you do this, you can watch TV, right? It was never external driven. It was intrinsic. But I think that's the superpower is noticing, like letting the, the child explore, noticing what they tend to like and finding ways to just pull that thread. I love it. So was there somebody then potentially beyond your dad that was also involved, whether it was the math and the sports, as opposed to the music, that like there was another person, like a second link that kept you excited about those activities and engaged? Or do you think it like truly was just like, nah, you know, if you put a pick and a string in front of me, you know, I'm just going to break it and hurt my finger. I think it really was him in, in the early days. And then if we're fast forwarding later to, you know, who's the next that created, I think so much momentum. And then you would always pull on that. Right. So like with school, I'd show up and it's like, Oh, I got, you know, an A minus. And it's like, well, why did you get an A? Right. Like these kind of things are always <laughs> right. Pushing on. Why not? Why not this? Why not that? Well, you could have done right. And so you, you just, it builds that, but it wasn't building an insecurity. I think you could do it the wrong way and it builds an insecurity. It builds, you know, the things you don't want. It, it would just build more of an, an ambition. I think is, is what it did. Then we can fast forward. I mean, if we want to go beyond that inner circle to when, you know, I started my first businesses and frankly, my mentor there, and we can pull on those threads, but I would actually argue is, was my co-founder. We were the same age. So it's not the normal mentor mentee relationship. We both yeah, helped we each other, that. but there was, there was, because we were different people, we were both business. Neither of us were like technical product people, but we had certainly different skill sets. I think I was more like Op, let's say operations, which is like strong on organization, strong on productivity, getting things done, understanding how to check things off a list, right? And he was more of a make magic happen, right? More external kind of extrovert and no fear. And so I learned a lot from that. Tell us a little bit about your businesses. So when I, I went into school thinking to school, to university, thinking I wanted to be a lawyer. And in fact, I was this is like, you know, most people, I think if you were to ask a 17 year old today, what they want to do, most actually don't know. And I was the opposite, like from like 10 years old, like from as long as I can remember, I was sure I wanted to be a lawyer and I thought it was going to be so cool. Wait, Pablo, you loved numbers and were good at numbers, but wanted to be a lawyer. I liked debating. I liked logic. And no. I thought that's what, what being a lawyer was going to be like. I imagined myself in a courtroom, you know, arguing and and just, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's right. What's that? Was your dad a lawyer? No, no. My dad wasn't a lawyer. I don't know how that profession, I can't remember how that profession came in front of me, but then that kind of idea developed as it does in a kid of this the kind of end outcome, right? You're in the courtroom and you're debating cases and, and that was attractive to me. But, you know, I realized through, through university, I took a law class and then just, you know, thought about the reality of it. I'm like, it's going to be a long road until I'm in a courtroom, you know, debating my own case. Mm -hmm. And so halfway through university was when I realized I actually didn't know what I wanted to do anymore because that wasn't interesting to me. And at the time, my co-founder, Lee, he, it's similar situation. Like he'd gone into university wanting to get into medicine, decided that wasn't for him. And so we kind of came together and decided, hey, maybe starting a business, you know, that could be fun. Let's, let's do that. And we started exploring different things together. All right. And so then with that business, what kind of brought you the view into venture capital and product market fit? I mean, that's how I came about and first saw you with your writing actually. So not, not, not with debating, educating and two, barely with numbers, just like well-placed numbers. So you obviously picked up another skill along the way and a love, but like, how did venture capital and product market fit come to you during your business? So venture capital was definitely serendipity, but I mean, if we're backing up, so Lee and I, we 
tried a few different businesses through university. And when I say tried businesses, we really tried. There was, there was a startup competition at the university we went to where if you won, you would get $20,000 grant, which yeah. to us as like cool. eight, 19, 20 year olds was like $10 million, right? Like, oh, this, yeah. was like this was life changing. Like, wow, I can't believe this is real. If that happens, we're basically millionaires, right? And so everything was, how do we get that money? And, and really it was a business plan competition because business plan was still a thing back then. And so we had several different ideas, you know, one, one worse than the other. We, I like, like the casual <laughs> business plans aren't a thing and I'll just keep going. <laughs> nice. We have decks now and now they have like memos and all this stuff. And so the memos actually, maybe we're going back full circle, right? Because I heard memos are cool now. And so maybe those really? get longer now. They're like business plans. I don't know. That, that's what somebody's in accelerator. Actually Lee's in an accelerator right now. And he told me, he's my co-founder Lee. And he was like, they're telling me I need to write a memo. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I don't. And I'm like, well, I haven't really seen that many of those, but I guess it's they're telling the kids now. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I remember when it was like on a fax, it would say like fax, like subject memo, because like, like for memorandum, but it wanted to be like cool because you want to save fax characters and keep it on one page instead of two. And then you'd have like memo and it'd be title and then you'd like hit something quick. But like, I'm not even going to tell you what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's all notion now, right? Like that's the cool thing. And so people started, you know, using that to write these like live memo things with links. And I'm just like, and now I feel like if I don't think that's cool, does that mean that I'm old? I don't know. You know, I don't know. But, but can, can, can I go to one of my favorite like mini blogs you wrote where you're talking about product market fit and you're like, there's one way to know if you have it and it's completely unsatisfying unless you're 100% sure you don't have it. So if right. you're not 100% sure that you're not cool or that you're cool, you're not cool. God, <laughs> that just breaks my heart, man. I don't know why I'm here. It's supposed to be a boost, you know? I'm just here to torture you. That's it. We actually need parenting tips. That's why we started the conversation. So we <laughs> right. both. Thank you. I don't have any kids, by the way. I have like, I'm in no position to give parenting tips to the audience. So like, disregard the first part of this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. That's hilarious. So I, I, I completely derailed, which no, is uh, how I like to do it. So beyond memos, where did you hear the, hear the term product market fit? Because that's yeah, what so really drawn me to you at, at the jump. So let's fast forward a little bit. I mean, we, we, you know, started business plans, whatever. We kind of almost got it at one point, but then we didn't get it. We can pull that story. I don't think that relevant. Then we started our first business. Basically what happened is fourth year university, I start tutoring on the side. And when the year comes to an end, Lee and I, we still don't have like a really cool business idea we can go after. So I'm like, well, I we'll have this tutoring semi business going on. Why don't we create that? Like, why don't we build a real brand around it and, and see what happens and, and kind of focus on university tutoring. So we launched my tutor. It was a tech-enabled services. I mean, it was, it was kind of a marketplace, but not really. Ran that for a year. And that was good, like, first foray into business. Really, you know, small business. Nothing nothing too earth-shattering. But but just got us right in. And, and we were making sales. And we were making money enough for us to, like, eat and pay rent effectively. And then halfway through that, and we mm-hmm. lived together. Lee and I lived together. We were roommates. So we are spending, like, five hours a week managing tutoring business. where we don't tutor. So you can imagine there's not that much to do. And the other, you know, however many hours a week, brainstorming random ideas. Yes, which I don't think is like how you're supposed to come up with a business idea. Um, but uh, I mean, it's doing. exactly what Julie wants to do. So <laughs> she is she is 100% ready to get weird with you on business ideas. Whenever you start, I'll, I'll will... give you my number. Call me anytime. Yeah. Oh, Middle of the night, it's all good. <laughs> There's people, Lee's like that, right? You know, I'm actually, I've realized like, I don't think I'm an idea guy. I'm like a more of a, you know, like once you have the idea, then, you know, I can, I can go from there. Right. But like the, the inception part, Lee is much more like, you know, 10 ideas a day sort of thing. And so anyways, one of those became GymTrack, which was a company in the wearable space. 
And so that was the venture back business that we ran for five years, roller coaster kind of story there that again, I can, I can dive into if you want to. And then coming out of that was where I was looking to start another startup. And I was introduced to the founders of Mistral, the, the seed stage firm where, I, where I'm now a partner and decided, you know what, what, like, let's check it out. Let's have some conversations. And so I spoke with each of the founders and, you know, every single conversation just made me more and more interested until I, you know, I decided and they decided, hey, let's, let's try this out. So they brought me in. That was five years ago uh, and really haven't looked back since. It's been an amazing ride. And through that, and, you know, so talking about product market fit specifically, yeah. I remember probably the first time I actually heard of the concept, I was in gym track probably a year or so in and a founder friend of mine kind of, we were having this like founder roundtable discussion and he came he, and he went up on the whiteboard. And he's like, this is the only thing that matters. PMF, product market fit, that's it. And they, he was at a different wearable company. And, you know, with wearables, like especially back then, product market fit was a distant thing because it was all about technology. It was all about the new cool metric that you could measure mm. that nobody else could. And that was like the thing. And that's what frankly got all the hype and got all the fundraising behind it. It was never... I've got product market fit. It was always like, I've got this wearable that can track this thing that nobody else can track and imagine, right? And so then you raise money. And he was at a wearable company that was very sophisticated metrics. At GymTrack, we wanted to track reps and weight, very, very kind of basic mainstream stuff. They were trying to track for, for cyclists, many different like power and hydration and like very sophisticated metrics. And so they had this band that would do that. And I remember him telling me, it's like, man, we have all these metrics. We do all these things. And then we finally decided, and I read about this product market fit thing, and I'm like, this is the only thing that matters. So I brought in cyclists to the office and I got them to try the product. And they told me they couldn't care less. They're like, they couldn't care less, but 10 of the metrics that we were tracking. But then, you know, at the 10th cyclist and I'm, and I'm talking about different things we could do. And finally, I told them that we could measure the power output consistency. And that's when it hit because cyclists are all about every single time you're pressing and pulling you want to exert a certain amount of power and you don't want these dead zones. And once I, we talked on this dead zone piece, that's when it hit like, oh, you can tell me where my dead zone is and how long it lasts. And all of a sudden there was interest, right? And that was like the first for him was the first time that he noticed, had a feeling for what product market fit could be like. And the first time I was introduced to the concept, I'm like, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. How did you kind of come across the concept and the testing was it just like your gut instinct was if we don't have pro product market fit, it doesn't matter. Or were the groups that you're working with, like go back and figure out product market fit or else we're not going to go forward. This is the story that he shared with me. I don't know where oh, he came up with okay, the concept. And so he did all this stuff. And then when he told me the story, that was my first introduction. And I'm like, you know, because I was in a similar world of wearables, I understood what he was getting at with all the metrics and stuff. And I could see how so much of the effort of all these businesses is around technology, it's around product, it's around accuracy. And at the end of the day, you can do so much that doesn't matter to the end user. And only when you do something, and then when what you realize that it's only the 2% that really matters, and that's the thing you should have gone all in on. So that was my first introduction to the concept of product market fit, right? I walked out, I still remember that meeting, we're talking about whatever, maybe a decade ago, maybe a little less. And I still remember it to that day, and I can see the scene of him, you know, writing that out. So that, that was the introduction. I don't know that I did anything with it at that time, but that was the introduction for Augment Fit. Okay. So, so then I'm curious how you took that, that like PMF, you heard it, it was brought into you. It was an unlock for me when I first heard it as well. And then 
it, there was a period of time before you started writing about it. Correct. And, and, and you were podcasting, tell me if I'm wrong, but you were podcasting before you were really doing these mini blogs on LinkedIn, right? Yeah, I don't start. It was, there was, there was definitely like some overlap. Like I did a few posts on LinkedIn and then I stopped and then I started podcasting and then I started again on, on LinkedIn. But I think what happened now you're breaking it out of me. Cause I don't, I don't actually recall the, I don't have this narrative like pre-built, but what happened was at one point I also started, this is now, so let's say that conversation happened. We're going to say 2014, 2015. By late 2016, I what I started doing was there's this regional innovation center where I live in Ottawa called Invest Ottawa. And I started helping them out as an entrepreneur in residence, which effectively meant that I would work with idea stage, like truly idea stage companies. And, you know, like we're talking, you know, half an hour a week, an hour every two weeks, like really small, like not, not a lot of time. But I think that's where... That's where I start where, because of the sample size, I wasn't a VC then. So when you're a founder, like you just have your business and in our business, it really you was just have your business. What do you mean? It's everything. Come on. It bro. is everything. And you just have, that's what I mean. You just have your business. You have nothing else. It is everything. There you go. 100%. That's, a, that, that's a different view of just, I get it. <laughs> but you only, but you know, the point is you don't see, you don't have your sample size is limited. Right. And so when, when I started seeing all these different idea stage companies. And I think that's when it started to hit me after 10 or 20 or 30 of these, holy crap, like how many of these people are ultimately focusing on things that just won't move the needle, the pitch, the story, the business plan, the financial model, like just so many things. And they're not doing the one thing that's actually going to get you to zero from zero to one, which is figuring out if you're actually solving a top of mind problem for your customers, do they even have, like, is the thing you're after even a top of mind problem? Are you actually solving it? And the net of those two things ultimately can translate into product market fit. But like, that's the beginning is value delivery. And that's when I think the importance of product market fit, that was probably the second moment, let's say, when the importance of product market fit was in my face. Pablo, I'm dying to know, because I imagine you mentor a whole lot of entrepreneurs. And this feels to me like you have distilled the one question that needs to be asked. And I'm actually also reflecting on your dad, right? Like who is helping you kind of see things that maybe you are missing. What one phrase do you use with entrepreneurs when they come into your office? What is the one phrase you use to get them to stop and pause? I mean, it could be just like, what is your market fit? But are there other ways that you kind of bring it out in them? hundred percent. Yeah. So I, so if I, it's different, obviously in a pitch session than, than a mentoring session, because at the end of the day, we have a job to do and that's to pick in, in me specifically two companies, three companies per year that I think could be outliers. And so, you know, I'm just, I'm taking this stuff in versus let's say in a mentoring capacity whether I can add some value or not in that, in that is, it becomes secondary because I, you know, I have a responsibility to LPs and all stuff. But let's say we're talking more on the, on the mentorship side. The question is like, do you believe you're solving a number one or number two priority problem for your customers? Like truly, if you were to ask your customers, what are the top three problems? And I mean your ICP, not like if you sell to some big companies, like just who do you sell to in that company? Who's your ideal customer profile? And if you were to ask him or her, what is the number one, number two, number three problems you face every day, every week, every month? Is your problem one of those? Because if not, you're going to have other, you're going to have bigger issues. And, and in the pitch meeting, the way I bring that out is I ask them, because we, we invest across verticals, right? So you can imagine 
many different industries. I, you know, most of the time know very little about the industry they're talking about. And I say, what's the before and after? So like, what's the world today for your customer and whatever? And then you come in with your product and what is the, what is their new world like? And I'm hoping it's not like, well, they save an hour a week, right? They save like four hours a week. Like that's like, okay, whatever. Really, what's the transformation from the customer, the ICP that's ultimately either using your product or paying for your product or championing your product, depending on how you're selling. So that's probably the, the question on both sides, like the mentorship piece and versus the, the kind of pitch. You want the entrepreneur to start singing a whole new world in front of you once you're Correct. Yes. Which I won't do right now. I don't know if God. I thought it was coming. I was like, I was just <laughs> Julie, hit it. <laughs> no, you do not want me doing that. How do people react when you say something like that to them in the differences? Uh, and, and, and I want to set up the difference in the relationships. When you say something like that, which I'm sure you say multiple times a week to people, when it's a pitch compared to a mentoring session where there's no like ask involved, what are the difference in the reactions? Like, have you been able to tease out some kind of something systematic? Well, of course, right? Because I think in a pitch, uh, you know, you're being tested. And so no matter what, you're going to have something to say. And, and so you say something and in some cases it's soft, let's say, or just not unclear. That's what I would say. It lacks clarity. In other cases, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? So we're investors in a company called Rome, which is a car subscription platform, like pretty basic stuff. The idea is you have short-term rentals on one side where you rent you know, a car for a day or a week out of like Turo or Avis or Hertz. And then you have long multi-year leases, which is you know traditional. And you have a huge gap in the middle. And so mm. what's an example of a before and after? Well, take it. There's many different use cases, right? But just as an example, well, I'm, I like to golf in the summer and I golf for like three months in the summer. So before Rome, I have to either rent a car every single time I want to go golfing, go to Hertz, like Uber to Hertz, get the car, pay an amount, do the whole transaction, go golfing and spend like two hours out of my, you know, six hour golf session just, and then return the car. Or I have to sign up for a multi-year lease and let my car sit idle for nine months, which is costing me whatever that's costing me per year. Now I just go on the app, get the car. It shows up delivered next week. I use it for three months and they pick it up when it's done. Okay. That's like black and white before and after that's clear value, just absolutely clear value. Right. And then a million other questions, but that is clear value delivery. And again, like, I mean, the, the stories of, of, of the weaker answer, the softer, the least clear answer is, uh, I mean, there's many, many stories, right. But, but that's an example of like the sort of thing that anybody can understand how that's a, that's a huge win for that customer before and after. Do you get a feel on like the differences in maybe like the emotional state or the like readiness to share of the person responding to you? You know, I'm trying to get into, you know, like, like you're, you're asking these questions not to necessarily be, you know, rude. You're asking these questions because in the end you actually want to help this business and you want them to, you want to help them help their customers. But the person you're talking to probably probably feels very differently. Yeah, you know, can you tell sometimes that when somebody asks it, they're like actually maybe frustrated, or can you tell like when you ask this question to a portfolio company the first time, it's a different like actual emotional response when you ask it like the sixth time? Yeah, I think so. So back to that that original question. I mean, when I when I ask it in a pitch meeting and I and I ask it a certain way. Because if I were to say like, you know, are you really solving a tough priority problem? They would just say yes, right? So I asked them, just describe the before, just describe the after. <laughs> and yes, money, please. <laughs> right. yeah. Are we, are we done here? I mean, they are, they are in sales mode. And so they're going to present something and, yeah. and 
the best founders will exert as much confidence as possible because they're doing the job, which is trying to get money for the company so that it can do what it needs to do. <laughs> on, on the flip side, if we're talking on, on the mentorship piece, that's where there's a wider spectrum of things, right? Of mm-hmm. course, the problem is this, you know, like person you need to be honest to is, is yourself, but often that's, that's the person you, you kind of lie to the, the most and not on purpose. Like I think Charlie Munger has this quote, I don't remember the exact thing, but it's like when you think you're convincing others and really you're convincing yourself. Right. So you start telling this narrative and telling this narrative and telling us you're pitching and you're telling people how great your startup is and blah, blah, blah. And you think you're really convincing different people in the room that your startup is great. All you're doing every single time is convincing yourself that your startup is really, really important instead of being a little bit more objective, which is kind of what you need to be, especially in, in, in the beginning. But it's mm-hmm. anyways, it's not that easy. So the point is, when I ask that question, it depends where they are. Right. I think if they're still in the maybe the honeymoon phase, the like I'm kind of selling phase, then they're going to present this kind of a story where, yeah, you know, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. At some point, if you get enough feedback as a founder that things aren't moving, you start to reflect and maybe you're more prepared or ready for that question emotionally, or you can be like, yeah, you know what? I don't know that I, I don't know that it is a top priority problem, but it takes time. Do you have a way, and I'm really trying to like tease out, like, do you have a way to make or help people begin to feel comfortable saying the I don't know when you ask a question, because that's one of the keys that we find in mentoring relationships that until somebody, especially in 2023, we're all addicted to being right. So when somebody can actually just be like, yo, I don't know. And I mean, I'm sure all of us each day say something to be right. They're like, really? Like, we don't really know. We haven't thought about it that hard. You probably think about things a bit harder than me. If I can just look at your writing on LinkedIn, like it's very, you're taking time to form thoughts. Many people kind of are flippant with it. So do you have a way to let others take a moment to like, be like, I don't know, like, let's talk about it. Do I have product market fit? So if we're talking about like portfolio companies, right? And I think that's one of the key pieces, right? Is you have to have a relationship. If you don't have a relationship and you don't have trust, you can't expect people to open up or have any sort of vulnerabilities. Frankly, it's just not worth it for them. But when it comes to portfolio companies, I think one of the things I, I try to do, which I hope helps, I mean, you kind of never know, but I really try to have like, I'm never sure is part of the thing. The, the reality is when I'm talking to a portfolio company, let's say at most once a week, like, yeah, we can text and email and whatever, but let's say we're actually talking face-to-face or on a Zoom call or whatever once a week because they got things to do. And they're spending probably anywhere between 50 to like 80 hours a week on their business. I can't know as much as them. That's a fact. And so any opinion that I have has to have a huge kind of asterisk beside it. And that asterisk is I'm not inside your business. Like I'm only getting what you share, you know, for an hour a week plus a little bit more. And and I think and I hope that that brings, that, that, like that allows them to be not a hundred percent confident. If I come in, I'm like, dude, you're, you're like, what are you talking about, man? You got like 20 employees. You got to have 15. I mean, you're crazy to have 20 employees. Like that's so stupid. Oh, you're going to conferences, man. I'm telling you right now, conferences is a waste of time. It's a complete waste of time. You shouldn't do it. Like, and I hear people talk like that, right? Like you're going to go raise a million dollars, raise three. Like I guarantee you, you're just like, it's just so sure about what they're saying. And at the end of the day, you just can't be that sure. First of all, in the seed stage world where things are just never that clear. And second of all, in a situation where you're spending an hour to their 70, right? Like you always have to have that in mind. And so the hope is that by always kind of having that asterisk right there, look, like I think this and that, but you know better. That just empowers them to then come back to you and say, well, actually like with this thing, I really don't know, right? Or just talking to you at that same level because you're 
effectively being vulnerable, I guess, in a sense, like you're, you're not trying to project this confidence that's fake. They don't need to project this confidence that's fake either. There's kind of a mirroring piece going on there, which I hope helps. I mean, it's hard to know. I actually, I keep thinking as you're talking, Pablo, about a mentor bench. We've definitely heard this before. The idea of having sort of like a tribe of mentors, right? Folks with like a variety of different experiences. For an entrepreneur in the startup phase of what you're talking about, what kind of profiles of people do you think they need to have on their mentor bench? I don't know if that's a word. I mean, it's not a great one. Well, it is. I mean, it's definitely like, I mean, people have it like advisors, right? Which are different types of mentors. And I've seen that being done as, as like from fully ad hoc, which is like some people you like talking to every now and then to something more structured. I've met a founder who said like, I need to have eight advisors and here are the eight things that I need. And they were really smart about it. They kind of said, you know, if I'm a hundred million dollar company, like this is their, their kind of framework. It was, imagine I'm a hundred million dollar a year business. What am I great at? I'm great at this. I got to be great at that. I got to be great at that. Like depending on the type of business they had. Okay. Therefore I need somebody to fill each of those boxes, right? Like what am I missing? Okay. These eight things. So I need somebody to go and fill each of these boxes of fintech company. And so they're like, okay, I need somebody who's well-connected in the finance world. I need somebody who's like really high up at like a payment rails, like Visa or MasterCard and so on and so forth. And they went and, and they built that out and they structured different agreements with different people. I think though that there's a nugget of wisdom there, which is at the very least, you've got to figure out, you know, the strengths and weaknesses piece, right? What do you really need to be strong at and who can help you there? And I think high level, like something that applies to probably every single, let's say, C-stage founder is find a founder or two that are one notch above you, not 10 notches above you, that they don't even remember what it's like to be you, right? Because now they have $100 million in the bank and, and they just have different problems. Somebody who's- I, I feel lucky every day that Julie still talks to me when she's that many notches above. So, <laughs> it's good that you're laying it out so, so she can remember. You got to bring yourself down to his level. You got to remember what it's like. I try. He is taller than me, but yeah, I try. But that's the idea. So if you're a seed and you have a series A or maybe even series B founder yeah. who was there like a year ago, they actually remember the struggles of what it's like to have mm. half a million dollars in the bank, what it's like to not be able to hire this person, even though you hundred percent should, but you can't. And, and just the subtleties, that's the difference is anybody can read a book and understand the theory, but if you haven't been in the shoes, you don't get the subtleties and the subtleties is what makes the difference between, you know, useless advice and game changing advice. Have you found a way to think through the time periods for where the potential mentor can still feel the things that the other person is going through? Like, I'm sure there are big enough events that like, you know, like there's a reason why everybody wants to give me parenting advice when my kid's like under two years old, because everybody can still feel that like time when they've had a kid. They're like, oh yeah, like, and women definitely more than men, they remember that time and they're, they're going to want to talk about it. But is there in the business world, especially as you're trying to, to grow a company, you know, is there specific incidences where you're like, okay, for, for different fundraising, you know, you really never want to be more than two or three years out. Whereas, you know, if it's for selling your business, maybe that time period is more like 10 or 15 years even because you, cause like, like the technology hasn't changed that much. The style hasn't changed. Like, do you have any kind of rules of thumb there? I see what you're saying. Like for, for different things, you can, you can reach out further. The, the problem is, yeah. And so I think that's probably true. Like something as big as selling your business, many people remember, and it doesn't necessarily change. But I find that it really these, these startups are such case by case situations. And mm. what keeps founders up at one founder up at night is often very different. I mean, there's core things like how much cash you have in the bank, how much runway do you have, you know, customers, but 
but the, then when you go levels deeper, like it really changes from, from founder to founder. And what I, that's what I found is like once, once somebody raises a series C and they're a unicorn and they have $150 million in the bank, their perspective changes. And all of a sudden they could be great to advise somebody who's like a series B founder with 20 million in the bank, but they can't remember actually at the deep enough level what it's like to have half a million dollars in a bank and have to make decisions on that. They don't understand why you can't hire the rock star engineer. Like, you know what I mean? And so all of a sudden there's this, there's mm. this kind of disjointness between the disjointed aspect between what that founder thinks you should do and which we even can do. Like what's a reality. That's why I'm so kind of adamant that one notch later, two notches later, right? So like, if you think about it in fundraising milestones, the easiest thing, but you can think about it in revenue. Like if you're a million in revenue, you want advice from somebody who's got 3 million, 8 million in revenue. You think you want advice from somebody who's got a hundred. Like you think you want Mark Zuckerberg to come in and tell you how to go from a million to 10 million, but he's not the guy. Like he's thinking about multi-billion dollar bets and he's forgotten a hundred percent what it was like to have a million dollars in revenue. He's just going to tell you to find some twins and swindle them. That's all he remembers. <laughs> I, this is so valuable, Pablo. I love this because I think it's really true in life, right? Like that person who's maybe a stretch ahead of you is really helpful in having you like be able to really think through what those next steps are. Like at that moment, it's just really about like the next steps. It's not about like these giant leaps. Are there places or resources that you point some of your entrepreneurs to or ways for them to connect better with others? Are there like certain groups or obviously, of course, your LinkedIn page, which we'll have um, dropped in the show notes, but are there any resources that you use with some of the teams that you work with? You're saying like to find mentors or are you just asking like in, in general? Yeah, maybe in general or like where they can, of course, one thing would be to find those mentors, but also to maybe find some of that, you know, sort of next step advice. It's a good question. I mean, look, there's, there's like, there's some people like I, for talking about, I can tell you this, like things that I read, right. So like Paul, you know, anything Paul Graham writes, I would read anything, someone like, you know, hard to implement some of stuff, but Howard Marks, anything on Stratechery, like these are just, there's some top-notch writers out there who have just, they just get what they do so much better than anybody else. And these are, these are places that I go to, to like get content. Yeah, I think, but, but I'll, but again, like the, the challenge is always bringing theory to practice. And I think that's where, this is why I like, you know, what you guys are doing in terms of augmenters, like there's humans are the ones that bridge that gap. And so, and the beauty about founders, I think is it's generally speaking, People who, because of the trials and tribulations they've gone through, are more than ready to help others. And so it, it doesn't take that much for a founder to find other founders that are willing to help. They can't jump into your business. They got things going on, but that are willing to have a call here or there and then potentially build a relationship with you over time. It's not as far as you think. This might be fully off and not, not actually be true, but when you said, you know, like, Humans bridge the gap and founders were already to help founders because of those trials and tribulations. Have you met a couple company owners or maybe investors even who haven't really had, let's say the downs, they've just really had ups. You know, there hasn't been that roller coaster. They haven't needed to figure things out as much. Have you found them potentially less willing to be like available to help somebody? Because normally when people ask for help, it's not because shit's going great. You know, like, and have you seen that? Not only have I seen that, I've seen the transformation of people who are, let's say, unicorns and untouchables go from that to, you know, these days are going unicorn to bankrupt overnight. And so take some punch to the face 
and humility just spike, right? Like people mm. that will, will, they just will not answer your emails because they're on top of the world. And then all of a sudden things change. They realize they never were on top of the world. And they're the nicest, friendliest people you can imagine. Extremely helpful because they do have incredible experiences and, and, and they're obviously extremely talented and smart individuals. That's generally why, I mean, there's a luck component, but there's, there's always a skill component that goes along. But yes, when people are in the peak of peaks, right? Like this, this untouchable, I can do no wrong. You know, I'm just such a crusher mode. You know, humility tends to, tends to walk out the door. And, and, if you, and, and then why would you help anybody sort of thing? And you'll help people, but only people that can help you, right? Like only if you look at somebody, and I know people like this, right? Like if you, it's kind of like, does this person think you're their equal or superior? In which case they're a 10 out of 10. Do these people think you're like an underling? In which case, like you're nothing to them right? There's just, they won't waste a second on you because how could you help them? Like people are in this. And I think that, yeah, when, and it's not everybody, by the way, I've met incredibly successful people who, who are total crushers who still keep humility, but it's hard. So I think if you've got, frankly, from a mentorship perspective, by the way, like going back to Zuckerberg, like, you know, even in the early days, like the stuff just took off. So he never went through, he went through crazy trials and tribulations, but he didn't in terms of getting traction as an example. So if you were to ask that, like even young Mark Zuckerberg, Hey, how do I get traction? He'd be like, just build a sick product that people love. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> are you insinuating that Zuckerberg might not have had trials and tribulations for product market fit? And that could be why the headset and the metaverse maybe are not taking off. Listen, <laughs> I, I am pro Zuck. Like I am a big fan. So Ooh, I'm not okay. going to go on the other side of that. Right. I mean, it's the reality is if you put out a product and it just takes off, like I was thinking about, you know, and I'm doing this new stuff on the show now where I'm going into the really early days of big, big companies like Nike, whatever, and trying to see how do they find product market fit. And so I'm looking through which company should I do next? And I did, and I'm going to do Nike soon. And, and then I was looking at Amazon. I'm like, oh, Amazon's such a cool story. I want to do that. And, and I knew the story of Amazon, but you listen to it and you're like, there's nothing to learn. I mean, basically Jeff Bezos is an absolute genius, a monster who's like at the right time, in the right place, sees the internet. He's like, the internet's going to be massive. You know what's going to be massive? E-commerce. You know what's going to be massive in e-commerce? Books. I'm going to do books. Does books just takes off. Like <laughs> that's the story. So what are you going to learn from that, right? What's he going to tell you about going from zero to one? He's going to market be like, analysis. I don't know. <laughs> just yeah. do it, right? Just do it. Versus somebody who put out a product, it didn't work. Took punches in the face, went out, did discovery. That didn't work. This didn't work. Finally figured something out. Boom, that worked. Okay, but only got him to a million. Then had to fight his way to ten or her way to ten or whatever. That person can help you a lot more. Go from zero to one, and so that's what you're you're looking for. And I think this is interesting from this simple piece that almost everybody would want. Like take the top ten founders in Canada, that's probably who you want as your mentor. You want Toby as your mentor, but that's not Toby. often Toby's the, sorry, here in, in Canada, he's a big deal because he's the founder of Shopify. Toby lives. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, but, but, uh, but, and he did go through a bunch of trials and tribulations, but my point is that's actually not really who you want. You want the people who took the punches to the face, who are close to where you are. One or recently two took the punches to the face. Sorry? Yeah. Who recently took the punches? Who to recently the took? Who yeah, still yeah. have the scars from the punches they yeah, just you, took. Exactly. You, you, you want to see the yellow bruising still? That's it, right. It, it can't go back to you know a, a regular complexion. It must Correct. still have some. They're not some on the floor problem. anymore. They've gone up, but they're still they're still hurting. Exactly what you want. It's the resilience. It's all <laughs> about the resilience and being able and the humility to share your story and to share That's honestly. Right. And I loved what you said about people who just are like, I don't know, you're nothing you know, now today, and then here they are back again, 
schadenfreude, but yep. it's a good reminder, right? That you always just being humble, like at any stage in life. And I think a lot of what we talk about with augmenters is like the feeling that you get by helping somebody else and that connection to your own well-being by being part of somebody else's journey. When they're successful, you feel that success for them. So while somebody who's coming and asking you for help may or may not be the next Zuckerberg, the next what have you, just knowing that you were part of their journey to help them get from point A to point B, or you said something that was really insightful, or you learned something from them, how important that is. I think, Jimmy, we have to do a product market fit analysis, and maybe um, we can share it with Pablo. But I think trying to help people solve those problems of feeling really isolated and alone in some of these experiences is what what we're here to try to do. It's going to be hard to find a wearable for that, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone can do it, it's you, Jimmy. If you can find a wearable that tracks product market fit, you have product market fit, and I will be the first customer. <laughs> yeah. your next and that's the real metaverse. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Oh, but Pablo, well, we have a couple rapid fire things we like to do at the end. Four are easy. The last one may, might be a little harder, but I'm just going to say four words and let me know what comes to mind. Whatever it is, is good. So when I say the word mentor, what pops up? Somebody's name, Code, who's like my mentor here at, at Mistral. When I say mentee. Learner. How about sponsor? Why does, why does money come into my head when you there say There you sponsor? go. Yeah, it's, it's all good. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're a podcaster. It makes sense. <laughs> and if I say coach. VC comes in my head because we, we tend to think of ourselves as, as not players, but coaches. Ah, I like it. And then we have this metaphor called like the book for book club. You know, book club itself is a great way for people to talk about anything other than the book. It's the book that brings people together. I'm curious if you have something that you bring, like an actual icon or you know token to meetings. Maybe it's just talking about product market fit. Maybe it's your blogging. But is there something you bring that helps like kind of unlock the conversation and get people to say, I don't know? Frankly, humility and like the ability to myself say and start with like this, I'm not sure, but like this, I don't know stance. Um, yeah, I think that's powerful. Awesome. Pablo, thank you so much. This was amazing. Julie, Jimmy, have, I don't think I've yet thought about Tony Montana in any of our episodes before, but as soon as Pablo said, cockroach founder, I could not help but think about Scarface. And I just love the idea of a founder that just doesn't go away, just won't die, just keeps showing up. I had definitely never made that connection either. Definitely not as it would connect back to mentoring. But I feel like Pablo actually brought uh, quite a bit new to us. We had never actually interviewed mm -hmm. a venture capitalist before. I am proud that in the last you know five years, I totally understand what a venture capitalist does. So that makes me happy. Hey there. And I can follow the whole conversation. And Damn. I also loved the concept of like, there are going to be people who are like literally invested in your success. Mm -hmm. And those are going to be people who also can mentor you. And that could be your banker. That could be your accountant. That could be your lawyer. That could be your venture capitalist that could be you know that it was just an interesting perspective like how do you take that like how do you take that information have you ever had somebody literally invested in your success also giving you advice yes yeah uh that person doesn't talk to me anymore maybe because <laughs> the investment didn't go that well yet yeah I, I i felt like i was treated like the son this individual never wanted and de definitely went <laughs> above and beyond what a standard investor would do. And it was both uncomfortable and appreciated. Like it was good for, it was good for the business and it, was, it wasn't asked for in the beginning, but it was very, it was appreciated. And I kept commenting on it and the individual knew how hard they were being on me. 
yet it was completely reasonable and uh it it was it was excellent mentoring the the person had beyond financial had an emotional investment in my successes or failures different from the financial investment in the business's successes and failures and I, I appreciate it and I still think about this individual who is a shadow mentor still ringing in my ear that's awesome that's awesome yeah and I guess it's partially your job right to really kind of parse that out like what is the advice for the business and then what what am I learning out of this experience so yeah that's what I feel like I really got out of our conversation with Pablo Totally. And I loved in the rapid fire as we went through mentor, mentee, sponsor. <laughs> sponsor was money. That was a good one. Shout out, <laughs> shout out Pablo. Uh, but when I said coach, clear. yeah, when I said coach, Pablo said venture capitalist. And I thought that was interesting because Augmenters defines coaches as folks that are very similar to mentors, but they definitely get paid. And so it was interesting to me, at least how I determined it while thinking too hard about his response was, yeah, they're going to mentor you, but they're expecting to get paid. There's a compensation piece tied into it. And it's a small difference, but that nuance is important. Yeah. Well, and I think his experience as a founder and, you know, working now for the venture fund. Yeah allows him to connect more authentically with the founders and be able to really know what it's like to be in their shoes. So while he is kind of, like you said, coaching and invested in the success, he also knows what it's like, which is, you know, such a big part of mentoring is just firewalking. And, you know, this is exactly what happened to me at this point in time. And this is, you know, what could happen to you. And as we spend a lot of time talking about in the entrepreneur community, that's how you learn. So yeah, that is a good point about coaching and that. I thought it was great. Uh, and, and yeah, and then also how Pablo really talked about thinking about the shoes or the step you need to take next and thinking about people who have recently walked that same path. And as Pablo being somebody who has run his own business, he is in a great position right now to be a mentor and coach to folks there he's investing in. So it makes a lot of sense why he's in this position and how he has that mindset about how he advises folks to really think about that next step. And that's a big piece of, you know, search, uh, the principle search within augmenters. You need to go out and have a lot of experiences. That's principle of roadmap. Yet you need to have the roadmap to understand where your professional and personal overlaps will be with a future mentor. And Pablo laid it out really clearly and productively for founders who are trying to grow their business. Yeah. And he was super direct. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that about him. He was super direct. He was very clear on what his priorities were and Mm -hmm. and what he was doing here. So yeah, no, it was a really fun interview. And it's great. Again, it was just like a really unique perspective. And it was great to get that uh, as well. I'm excited, Julie, to at a future event be like, this is Julie Meyer, my co-founder and co-host at Augmenters. She's a cockroach founder. She doesn't go away. Is that what you're trying to say? She doesn't die. Yeah. You know, at the end of the world, it's just cockroaches and Keith Richards. (laughs) I am resilient. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I think it's more that ca- can you withstand a nuclear winter? And those are the two groups that can. I guess it remains to be seen. <laughs> yeah, you, you mean on the beach hasn't occurred yet in real life? Okay, good to know. Augmenters out. Wow, you've made it this far and we thank you. Hopefully you enjoyed our episode and discovered new ways to bring more authentic connection into your mentoring relationships. Want to tell them more, Jimmy? Be an Augmenter with us. Visit our website for the best interactive mentoring content at augmenters.us. Share our podcast with someone you care about. Like and subscribe. 
And yes, really, you following our show and writing a review, it's a big deal. Your actions provide us with the resources to continue our undefeated, unencumbered, prize-winning productions. We welcome questions and suggestions via email, hi at augmenters.us, or on social with our handle at augmentershq. We are most active and available on LinkedIn and YouTube. Shout out and earnest thank you to our intrepid producer, Erlen Cato. We appreciate you. Augmenters out. See ya.